0: a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you need an inspiration. He's to and friends with some revelations. known fact about my guest today, his most recent book, How Coppola Became Cage, is an incredible, deep dive, fascinating, fascinating read about the life and work of Nicolas Cage. I'm so thrilled to have author Zach Schoenfeld on the podcast today, and you will be too. Welcome, Zach. okay Everyone, my guest today is Zach Schoenfeld. Zach is a freelance writer, journalist, and critic based in New York. He writes about culture for Pitchfork, Vulture, Spin Magazine, and many other publications. He was formerly a senior writer for Newsweek, where he was on staff for five years. His first book, Ghetto, Misfortune's Wealth, was published in 2020. His most recent book, How Coppola Became Cage, is his second book that we are going to talk about deep dive into today on the podcast. I am so thrilled to have Zach Schoenfeld here today. How are you, Zach?
1: i I'm great. thank. Thank you so much for having me.
0: I'm so thrilled. Um I want to get into your new book. Um, obviously, it's such a great fit for this podcast that focuses so much on on sort of the most um successful artists of our generation. But it's also thrilling to have someone who's writing about one of the most successful artists of our generation. But before we get into that, I sort of would love to know a little bit more about you and your history as a writer and and being at newsweek for for 5 years and then going on to do all of these really cool independent projects so for listeners at home who sort of want to know a little bit more about your origin story and how they too could maybe get into the world of journalism freelance or for hire at one specific magazine as you were at for a while kind of how mm-hmm. what was your what was your intro into all of this
1: well, I got started in journalism in college. Um, I went I went to Wesleyan University and I became really passionate about writing while I was there. Um, I took writing workshops in college and I also, um, I, I was the editor in, in chief of our college blog, which reported on all of the like student happenings and all the drama and turmoil and craziness that went on on campus. So I Um, that was kind of my life in college was running this blog all about life on campus. Um, and at the same time, I was really interested in writing about music and pop culture. Um, and so I, I was contributing album reviews to a website called pop matters, which is still around today. Um, and I kinda managed at, at some point during my junior year of college, I managed to land an internship with Rolling Stone, um. And that was kind of my intro to the world of professional media and magazines. So I I spent a summer working at Rolling Stone's office. And at the same time, I was freelancing for different publications like Pop Matters and Consequence of Sound. Um, And so after college, um, yeah, after college, I worked at, I did a fellowship with the Atlantic, and then I landed a job at Newsweek. And I was at Newsweek for five years. And that was really, really how I got I feel like, you know, I never went to journalism school. I was never um, I was never really trained as a journalist. I didn't take journalism classes. Working at Newsweek was kind of my on-the-job training, and I was there for five years, um, primarily covering culture. I got the chance to interview and profile so many interesting celebrities, people, everyone from, like, Carly Rae Jepsen to Michael Stipe to Morgan Freeman. I interviewed when I was at Newsweek. Um, and... Um, News- During the time that I was there, Newsweek's parent company kind of went haywire. There was a lot of turmoil, a lot of corporate corruption and craziness that went on. And and um, by the end of my time at Newsweek, pretty much everyone was getting laid off. To Pretty much everyone was getting laid off, and I knew that my days were numbered. And eventually, I got laid off in 2019, and I've been freelancing and writing books ever since. So this is my second book that just came out.
0: It's so, I keep, as you were talking, I was imagining, you know, I know you know the film Almost Famous, it was a Broadway Mm -hmm. show in recent history, and I wonder, um, are you a fan of that film?
1: Um, I like it, but I I would not say that it's a very accurate depiction of my day-to-day life.
0: Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Is there a film uh, that, or a book that is more a depiction of your day-to-day life that you've come across?
1: Um, not, no, not really. Um I would say that two of two films about about journalism that I think are pretty relevant and accurate to what it's like to be a journalism in the more modern era would be Spotlight, which won best picture a few years ago. And she said the film that just came out last year about the New York Times journalist who broke the Harvey Weinstein story um i'm obviously i'm not comparing my own work to those journalists who've done much more important work than myself but i i thought that she said was a was a pretty compelling and accurate depiction of what it's like to do investigative reporting you know in the in the social media age right Um, so and i I, I think she said you know one thing i liked about that movie is that I think it did a good job of showing that a lot of the work of investigative journalism, it can be grueling and it can be pretty mind-numbing and, and even tedious at times. Like you have to yeah. really work hard and drill down and, and be really um, persistent in order to produce a compelling work of journalism.
0: Well, you have created... Um a really compelling book that is such a deep dive into um the actor Nick Cage and so i want to know of all the people on the planet that you could spend you know to your point there's the the sexy part of journalism and then there's mm-hmm. like the rigorous tedious fact finding trying to get interviews, people saying no, finally someone saying yes. Um, So you have to, it's sort of like directing a film. You're not just directing a film. It's three years of your life at the very least. So how many years of your life was spent on this most recent book and why Nick Cage of all the subjects on the planet?
1: I spent close to four years on the book total, if you include if you go all the way back to when I actually wrote the book proposal that was in 2019 when I came up with the idea for the book. So it's it's been about 4 years of my life on this project. Um and why why Nicholas Cage? I I think he is the most interesting actor of his generation. Um not just not just because he's a brilliant actor who has such a compelling and eccentric tr- screen presence, but also because he's made so many unexpected career choices and he's excelled at so many different genres. I mean, you look at, he's done romantic comedies like Moonstruck and he's done, you know, 80s teen movies like Valley Girl. And he's also excelled at some really dark and kind of depraved, uh, low budget films like Vampire's Kiss or Red Rock West. And then after that, he became this Huge action hero, you know, getting paid twenty million dollars a movie in films like The Rock and Face Off. Um, so I think there's something remarkable about how much of a chameleon he has been throughout his career. Um, and I also think what's interesting about Cage is that he commits to these, he commits to every performance with a level of intensity that I think is quite unique among modern actors. Um, he certainly earlier in his career he was taking a lot of influence from. The crazy method acting that people like Robert De Niro and Al Pacino did in the 70s. You know, you hear about these crazy stunts like De Niro worked 20 hour shifts as a cab driver when he was trying to prepare for his performance in Taxi Driver. Cage was very inspired by those kinds of legends. And um, one of the things that excited me about this book was to really delve into the question of how far... And one man go for the sake of a film performance? And, and how far can Nicolas Cage go? And there's so many interesting and wild stories about things that he's he's done on, on sets of different films. Like, for instance, famously, when he was making the movie Birdie, and he's playing a Vietnam War veteran, he insisted on wearing bandages on his face nonstop for, for weeks on end, because he wanted to understand the pain that his character was feeling. And when he did Vampire's Kiss, he swallowed a live cockroach, which wasn't even in the script. That was his own idea. He wanted to swallow a live cockroach because he was playing a guy who was going insane and thought he was turning into a vampire. Um, Part of what interested me about Cage is that, you know, there are stories like that that get passed down. Like, oh, you know, I heard that Nicolas Cage swallowed a cockroach. I heard that he got his teeth pulled without Novocaine for the sake of a a movie because he wanted to be in pain. there are a lot of stories like that that have spread and um i feel like it's hard it's been it's hard to separate the facts from the mythology around cage and i wanted to write a book that would really try to dig deeper than anyone has ever dug into his origin story and try to like understand you know is this story true did this really happen try try to like separate the fact from the myth around him because i felt like nobody has really done that to the same to the same extent before.
0: Was he an actor as you were growing up? Were you obsessed with his films?
1: Um, I, I was interested in his films growing up. I wouldn't say I was obsessed, but I remember one, the first movie of his that really made an impression on me was National Treasure. I was 14 when that movie came out. I think my mom took me to see it, and I was really... I was a really nerdy kid who was into American history. So this movie about, you know, this guy who finds a treasure map on the Declaration of Independence and he goes on this crazy quest for treasure. Um, I was 14 and I was like right at the age where I was able to suspend disbelief and think like, yeah, like maybe there is real buried treasure hidden, you know, <laughs> on the back of the Declaration of Independence. So that his performance, I I think was memorable. He He does a good job of playing obsessive characters who go on these kind of wacky but intense quests um and later on when I was in high school I remember watching Peggy Sue Got Married and Raising Arizona Uh and both of those movies I fell in love with you know both of those are really kind of interesting funny comical performances from him um but I I didn't really become obsessed with him until around 20, you know, I've been a fan for a long time, but I, I wouldn't say I became obsessed with him until 2015 was when I was working at Newsweek and I got the chance to interview Nicolas Cage for a short Newsweek article. He was promoting one of many, like, forgotten mediocre films that he was pumping out during that era. Um, but I I tried to dig a little bit deeper in the interview and I asked him about his filmography and films he'd done before. I, rem- I remember we were talking about The Wicker Man for some reason, which was a movie that he did and we were talking about all these memes that that all the Nicolas Cage memes that were kind of lighting up the internet during that time um and so that I think that interview was the impetus for me to dig a little bit deeper into his filmography and his backstory and I realized that there were all these great movies all these great performances that he had done you know long ago that I had just never seen and that people didn't really talk about when they mentioned Nicolas Cage. Films like Birdie, which I think is an incredible performance from him, or Bringing Out the Dead, which is a a film he did with Martin Scorsese, or Matchstick Man, which um, is one of my favorites. I I feel like, you know, people tend to talk about Cage like he's a joke or he's a meme, and the more that I dug into his filmography and really explored his body of work, I, I realized that he doesn't get the credit that he deserves as one of one of the truly great actors of his generation. Um,
0: And so you wanted to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to
1: write a book that really. For, you know, one, I wanted to write a book that digs into his origin story. The focus, obviously the focus of this book is on the early years of Cage's career, roughly from about 1980 to 1995. I wanted to write a book that explores where did this guy come from um, how did he become the icon that he is today? But I also wanted to write a book that explores Nicolas Cage, not as a joke, not as a meme, but as a young artist trying to find his path and trying to figure out who he is. Um, And I, I hope that the book portrays him more, more as a person than, you know, just this joke.
0: Well, I mean, I think even if you're not... um a film fanatic many people know that Nicholas's cage uh, was originally Nicholas Coppola and his yeah. uncle is Francis Ford Coppola and that um as legend has it he wanted to kind of forge his own path um so can you talk a little bit when you say origin story um let's talk a little bit is about his origin story his family uh, and and why he was so determined to you know, in the world of of Nepo baby, that's become such a, a well-known phrase. Yeah. Um, here with someone going, I really, I really don't want to be that, or I really don't want to start out as that. Um, what do you, what do you know about that? And what can you share about that?
1: So part of, part of what makes Nicolas Cage's origin story so interesting to write about is that he was, He did come from a prominent family. His uncle, Francis Ford Coppola, was the director of The Godfather and Apocalypse Now. And when Cage was a child, you know, Francis became one of the most successful film directors in Hollywood and um, became hugely rich and successful and celebrated. And Cage, he had what I would describe as a pretty love-hate relationship with his uncle's fame. Um, because on, you know on one hand he he totally benefited from having this famous uncle because he he got roles in some several of his uncle's movies very early on specifically Rumblefish and um, The Cotton Club Peggy Sue got married and um but then at the same time he really resented people um talking about him as a nepo baby and people implying that you know he only got to where he was because of who, because he was a nephew of Francis Ford Coppola, he he had a lot of deep seated resentment about that, and and that was really what drove him to change his name to Nicholas Cage because he he wanted to um, distance himself from the Coppola family and break out on his own.
0: You talked in the book about his mother's mental health issues. How much? How much time did you spend trying to kind of really figure out what was going on in a household of a dad raising boys on his own mostly, from what yeah. I could tell?
1: Um, I Cage had a very complicated childhood. Um, his mother was mentally ill and she was institutionalized for a good for a good chunk of his childhood. And so his his father was a literary professor, and his father, you know, didn't really make enough. His father didn't really have the time or the money to raise three boys on his own. So Cage was sort of raised by his older brothers part of the time. He was also sent to live with Francis for summers. Um and so he he had a very tumultuous and kind of traumatic childhood. Um, and I think he resented the fact that because he was a member of the Coppola family, people assumed that he was born rich and he wasn't. He actually like his family actually didn't have a lot of money when he was growing up. His dad was, working for a college as a professor and so that 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 was also part of why he had so so much resentment and, and so much uh like such a need to prove himself
0: he is um considered not only one of the most talented actors but one of the most eccentric um you know he's been known to buy incredibly strange or luxurious things um he has lost all his money he has gotten his money back it yeah. seems like he has a really complicated relationship or thrilling relationship to to what to do when you have a lot of extra cash around Do you feel like in kind of getting to know him that in some ways there there's a direct link to what you just described in terms of his childhood and how he ended up being someone um, living really large and eccentrically at times?
1: Yeah, you know, early on in his career in the 90s, he actually, he told an interviewer, sometimes the only way I can feel free is by spending money. And he over the course of his his career he he's become known for making very flamboyant purchases um like early on when he was in his 20s he had an entire aquarium in his apartment with literally sharks swimming around in a tank in his apartment and then um later on once he started making the big bucks starring in you know big budget hollywood action movies he started buying all this real estate like castles in germany and england and romania And sport fancy sports cars. At one point he owned a private island. Um, and so he he's lived a very flamboyant lifestyle and he's spent his money in pretty extravagant ways. And that's, you know, I think it's become col it's excuse me, it's become common knowledge that the reason that Cage has done so many bad movies in the past 10 to 15 years is because he was deep in debt from his real estate purchases and he basically needed to do four or five movies a year in order to pay off all of his his real estate debts. Um, but what I what I learned while researching this book is that he, you know, much earlier in his career, he he admitted pretty openly that he did some movies because he desperately needed money. Like he, for instance, he did a a largely forgotten movie called Firebirds in the early 90s, um, which was his first ever action movie. And it was kind of a Top Gun ripoff. And at the time he admitted on the record that he, the only reason he did this movie was because he had bought a fancy house in the Hollywood Hills and he was in over his head and he needed to pay off his house. Um, So part of what's interesting about Cage is like throughout his career, there's been this real tension between art and commerce. Like on, on one hand, he um wants to make indie movies. He wants, he wants to make artistically interesting movies like Leaving Las Vegas, which is the movie for which he won an Academy Award, and and movies like more recently Pig, which I think was a really wonderful performance. But then also he he's had all these money troubles and he's needed to do a lot of um, lousy movies in order to pay off his real estate debts. And, you know, that goes back. I think that that pattern began much earlier in his career than than fans realize.
0: So in doing this book, you've talked to so many directors and other, just so many people who've worked with Nick Cage. And what's your takeaway? What are some of the the stories that are most memorable to you about yeah. what life is like on set with Nicolas Cage?
1: I interviewed a lot of people for this book, both famous directors, famous actors, and also lesser known people, you know, casting directors and cinematographers and people who are not household names and, and one you know one thing that was interesting about this book is pretty much everyone who has worked with Nicolas Cage has a story that they're that they're just like dying to tell and I don't mean that in a dark way but just like he's just so
0: compelling
1: intense and yeah. committed to every performance that like every everyone has a story about what it's like to work with him um some of the stories that really stood out to me um You know, I interviewed Martha Coolidge, the director of Valley Girl. That was his first ever starring role. So that was a huge, um, hugely important film for him. And Martha Coolidge talked about how um, during the filming of Valley Girl, he insisted on sleeping in his car because he felt like that would make him feel more connected to his character. His character in the movie is a punk, someone who doesn't have a lot of money. Um, And he insisted on sleeping in his car throughout the shoot. And she was like, Nick, like we need to be able to reach you if the if the call time changes. Like, you know, how are you going to access the phone? And he was like, Don't worry, I'm going to sleep in my car. I'll just go to the payphone every day. Um, another great story. I, I interviewed Mike Figgis, who directed Leaving Las Vegas, which is one of Cage's all time great performances. And and in that film, he plays a man. He plays an alcoholic who basically decides to move to las vegas and drink himself to death and while during pre-production for the film cage mike vegas recalled that cage went up to him and said you know i have a great idea i'm gonna be drunk during the entire shoot like i'm just gonna be at, like actually shit faced drunk every day and mike vegas was like absolutely not categorically not that that is not gonna work you cannot do that um and so Cage compromised and he ended up hiring a so-called drinking coach to hang out in his trailer throughout the film shoot and this was a man who was a drunk poet like a self-described drunk poet who would just hang out in Cage's trailer every day getting drunk and giving Cage ideas about how a lifelong alcoholic would behave in different situations
0: that's incredible
1: it sounds ridiculous, but it resulted in a remarkable performance, and, right. and ended up earning Cage an, an Oscar, his his one and only Oscar. Another great story is I interviewed David Lynch for for the book, um, and David Lynch directed Cage in the in the film Wild at Heart, which is kind of this violent, um, extravagant road movie with Cage and Laura Dern playing lovers who are on the run. Um, and david lynch talked about how like he and cage were just talking about elvis because they thought that the character that cage is playing in wild at heart reminded them of elvis presley and this wasn't in the script but david lynch just came up with the idea that cage should actually sing elvis presley songs in the movie and they should write that into the script and um you know Dave, david lynch said that C- cage just like didn't hesitate he he was just completely willing to just you know, he he wasn't a professional singer. He had never really sung in this way before, but he was totally willing to just give it a try and sing these Elvis Presley songs. And that became a huge a huge part of of the film. Um and Dave, David Lynch likes to describe Cage as the jazz musician of actors, which I find really interesting. Um And what he means by that is that Cage can just improvise. He could just riff on on something and and just take it in a direction that you that you totally don't expect. And. And maybe it doesn't always work, but it's it's always interesting. It's always something compelling.
0: How much of his family were you able to connect with for the book?
1: Um, So the only member of the Coppola family who I talked to was Cage's brother, Christopher Coppola, um, who is also a film director. And actually he directed Cage in a movie called Deadfall, which is this, uh, it's a neo-noir crime film that came out in the early 90s and it's it's kind of a coppola family project in the sense that it's directed by christopher coppola it stars Nicolas cage and it also features their aunt talia shire in in a small role um and yeah so it was really interesting talking to christopher coppola but there it was also kind of um there's a lot of a lot of drama there's been a lot of drama and tension between the brothers coppola particularly between nicholas and christopher and so the book kind of delves into how um nick and christopher had a falling out after this movie deadfall in large part because nick's performance in that movie is so over the top and wild that it like really kind of dominated the movie in ways that that christopher did not intend um so there there's a lot of you know, the Coppola family, I, in the book, I compare it to the Corleone family because there's just so much drama and intrigue and and uh, grudges and tensions that have that have that have simmered in that family in the many years um, that they've been in Hollywood. Um, and Cage, you know, Cage has been at the center of a, a lot of this drama because he he's had this like intense love hate relationship with his uncle and he's had a. Very uh, fraught relationship with his older brother Christopher, and he also had kind of a stormy relationship with his father August Coppola because um, August Coppola kind of in the early years August Coppola disapproved of Cage's aspirations to be an actor, and he he had a lot of resentment about the fact that his work as a literary professor was overshadowed by all of his his you know relatives, his family members who had gone on to great success in Hollywood. So. Yeah, there's there's been a lot of, um, inter- there's a lot of interesting stories about that family behind the scenes.
0: There's so much mythology and curiosity around how much pain an artist has to be in personally in order to do good work. You know, Olivier famously said to Hoffman, "Try acting, right?" There's just so a classic, many. Classic, a classic
1: quote. Yeah.
0: Right. Like. Yeah, my dear I boy, think, and, and yeah, he I is think, not that guy.
1: No. He, he Cage is the kind of guy who will do anything for the sake of a great performance. He will put himself in personal peril for the sake of a, of a great film performance. And that's one of the things that I find fascinating about him.
0: Yeah, and thrilling. And so congrats on this book, um, Zach. I end every episode asking my guests to share a little known fact about themselves um, in honor of the name of my podcast, Little Known Facts. And I wonder okay. if off the top of your head... Um, you can think of anything uh, yeah. to share about yourself.
1: A little known fact about me, this is related to the theme of movies, um, a little known fact about me is that the first movie I ever saw in a theater was Silence of the Lambs, and I was four months old.
0: <laughs> okay, I was going to say, thank God, because if you were four years old, I'd be calling uh, children services and seeing if as you you As you should, yeah.
1: <laughs> <As> you should <laughs> get my dad arrested.
0: I will. Um, Congratulations on this book. Do you have, while I have you here, are you already on, I mean, obviously you're promoting this right now. Um, mm-hmm. Are you on, what's your next deep dive? Do you know what your next theme is going to be and what you really want to work still, on?
1: I'm still figuring that out. Yeah. yeah, I don't quite know what my next book will be, but I, I definitely, I definitely want to write another book about movies because I, I really enjoy the opportunity to delve deeper into the movies I love and and talk to the people who actually were involved in, in making them.
0: Well, congrats on this. And I look forward to seeing what happens next. And thank you for being on the show today. I'm thank so, so thrilled. Of course, of course. Clouds can make the wind blow. I have some news. Little Known Facts is now available to watch on YouTube. Hours and hours and hours of interviews that you can see my fabulous guests. And guess what? It's called Little Known Facts with Alana Levine. Catchy, right? Anyway, head on over to YouTube and watch the podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe. Also, if you want to donate to the podcast, zero pressure. But if you want to, no donation is too big or too small. I am so grateful for you for listening. But if you want to donate, just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com forward slash donations. Lastly, Little Known Facts is recorded in Brooklyn, New York, USA. My editor is Nicholas Clark. None of this happens without Nicholas. And the Little Known Facts theme song was composed and sung by Georgia Famosa with backup vocals by Caleb Famosa. Thank you for listening and have an amazing day.
1: Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands.